Okay, Acts 21, last major section in Acts. Uh, so there's a transition. Paul is in Jerusalem. He's been traveling around for the last 10 years as a pioneering missionary, planting churches everywhere he's gone. Now he's back in Jerusalem, and the rest of the book is, honestly, it's, it's uh, different. Paul has this one speech. He preaches about four times, so if you miss a week, you'll be fine. You'll catch it. The next week, he preaches it to different audiences. And for us, kind of stepping back and looking at it, the lens that we're going to take is we see God fulfilling his word to Paul. When Paul became a Christian in Acts 19, or excuse me, in Acts chapter 9, God sent a prophet, a guy named Ananias, and Ananias says, through, God through Ananias says to Paul, you're going to be an apostle of the Gentiles. You're going to share the good news to Gentiles, to their kings, and to my people in Israel. And Paul has been doing that, but there's really a focus around that over these last handful of chapters. It's almost a culmination of Paul's ministry. It doesn't look anything like I think Paul probably thought it would, but we see God fulfilling his word to Paul, and that'll be an ongoing theme for us over the next few weeks, is how God fulfills his promises or how he fulfills his word to us, even and maybe especially when it doesn't look the way that we thought that it would. So this last major section will start in chapter 21, verse 17. When we arrived at Jerusalem, the brothers and sisters received us warmly. So remember, Paul's traveling with a group. That's the we. He's got uh, representatives from these different churches that he's planted with him. And he's also got a bunch of money. He's taken up an offering from all of these churches and he's bringing it back to the church in Jerusalem. So there's seven or eight, ten, ten guys with him with this cash that they're bringing to Jerusalem. The brothers and sisters, that's the church in Jerusalem, greets them warmly. Again, it's been eight years since Paul's been in Jerusalem and a total of ten years that he's been doing this um, traveling ministry. The next day, so after he gets there, the next day, Paul and the rest of us went to see James and all the elders were present. Paul greeted them and reported in detail what God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. So James is the brother of Jesus. He was not one of the twelve. That James got his head cut off along in Acts chapter 12. This is uh, James, the brother of Jesus, who becomes a Christian after Jesus' resurrection. It appears that all of the apostles have left Jerusalem. They're in other parts of the world uh, spreading the gospel. James is the head of the church in Jerusalem now. Again, it's been eight years since Paul has been there. And so what they're saying to him is, give us a report. What have you been doing? For the last eight years, and Paul says, here's how the gospel has been spreading among Gentiles, and everybody's excited about that. When the church, when these leaders heard this, they praised God. Then they said to Paul, you see, brother, how many thousands of Jews have believed, and all of them are zealous for the law. They've been informed that you teach all the Jews who live among the Gentiles to turn away from Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or live according to our customs. What shall we do? They will certainly hear that you've come, so do what we tell you. There are four men with us who've made a vow. Take these four men, join in their purification rites, and pay their expenses so they can have their heads shaved. Then everyone will know there's no truth in these reports about you, but that you yourselves are living in obedience to the law. As for the Gentile believers, we've written to them our decision that they should abstain from food sacrificed to idols, from blood, from the meat of strangled animals, and from sexual immorality. The next day, Paul took the men and purified himself along with them. Then he went to the temple to give notice of the date when the days of purification would end and the offering would be made for each of them. So, set the scene. So, Paul gets his report 
And then we'll just say James, this representative of the leader, says, that's great. Here's what God's been doing in Jerusalem since you've been gone these last eight years. We've had thousands and thousands of Jews who are now following Jesus. So the gospel's been effective among Gentiles with Paul, and the gospel's been effective in Jerusalem through James. And both of these groups are flourishing. And James can see some potential tension here. You have Jews and Gentiles who... For centuries, there's been animosity, particularly from Jew towards Gentile. And so this period in history, there's actually a lot of uh, Jewish nationalism kind of floating in the air. There have been some guys in Jerusalem who tried to lead some revolts against the Roman government, and the Roman government has squashed them brutally. And so the Jews are not loving the Gentiles ever, and they're especially not right now politically and socially. And so... Combine all of that with these rumors. They're not true. There's no, James doesn't think they're true. We can tell by his um, response to Paul. These rumors that as Paul's going around from city to city to city, as he goes into these synagogues, that's where he always starts and preaches the gospel, he's telling the Jews, hey, you don't have to be Jewish anymore. You don't have to circumcise your kids. You don't have to follow the Old Testament law. You don't have to do any of that anymore. And so that word has trickled back to Jerusalem over the course of these last eight years, and James sees a potential powder keg. You've got just, again, the general cultural unrest towards Gentile rulers. You've got the historical animosity between Jews and Gentiles as people. And then you've got added to that the false reports that Paul is encouraging Jews Throughout the world, it's called the diaspora, Jews that are spread out, not concentrated in Jerusalem. He's spreading, uh, uh, he's telling all of those Jews, hey, you don't, have to, you don't have to be Jewish anymore. And he's leading them away from Moses. And what demonstrate your Jewishness. Here's something that you can do to prove to all of these Jewish Christians in Jerusalem and the people I'm trying to reach, just the Jews in Jerusalem who have yet to follow Jesus. James wants to maintain credibility with them. And he also wants... To, uh, with his people who have now become Christians, he wants there to be fellowship between them and Paul. He says, here's what you can do to demonstrate your Jewishness. We've got four guys who have made a Nazarite vow. You can look at that in number six. So for 30 days, you don't cut your hair. For 30 days, you don't drink alcohol or anything else strong. And for 30 days, you have to avoid uh, touching a corpse or anything that would make you unclean. At the end of the 30 days, you go to the temple and you cut off your hair and you burn it, which smells terrible, but that's what God wants. Cut off your hair, burn it, and then you present these offerings, and they're, they're extensive and expensive. This was a voluntary vow, and there was a, it was a high bar. A male and a female lamb, a male ram, bread that they had to make, then there was some grain and some wine offering. So all of that per, times four. And so James says, I've got a great idea. We've got these guys are coming to the tail end of their Nazarite vow. You go purify yourself with them, and then you pay for them to get those sacrifices. So they could, they could get all of those animals at the temple courts. Remember Jesus driving out the money changers and all that? You could get all of those animals for sacrifices around the temple. And so James says to Paul, you buy all those animals for these guys, and that will demonstrate your Jewishness. You're supporting these four men fulfilling this vow that they made before the Lord. And Paul says, okay. So he goes to the temple. It was normal for a Jew who had been in Gentile country 
to purify himself when he came back. Remember, we've talked before, uncleanness in the Jewish mind was contagious. And so if you've been in a Gentile area, you touched something or sat on something or ate something, somehow you defiled yourself. So just in case, you go and purify yourself. So Paul does that. And then he says, we're going to come back. I'm going to come back with these um, with these guys in a few days, and I'm going to pay for their offerings for them to complete their vow so they can cut their hair, and then their, their vow will be completed. So that's the idea, great heart behind it. Wonderful idea, didn't, didn't work out so well. Verse 27, when the seven days were nearly over, some Jews from the province of Asia saw Paul at the temple. They stirred up the whole crowd and seized Paul, shouting, fellow Israelites, help us. This is the man who teaches everyone everywhere against our people and our law in this place. And besides, he's brought Greeks or Gentiles into the temple and defiled this holy place. They'd previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian in the city with Paul, and assumed that Paul had brought him into the temple. The whole city was stirred up, and the people came running from all directions. Seizing Paul, they dragged him from the temple, and immediately the gates were shut. While they were trying to kill him... News reached the commander of the Roman troops that the whole city of Jerusalem was in an uproar. He at once took some officers and soldiers and ran down to the crowd. When the rioters saw the commander and his soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. The commander came up and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. Then he asked who he was and what he had done. Some in the crowd shouted one thing and some another. And since the commander could not get at the truth because of the uproar, he ordered that Paul be taken into the barracks. When Paul reached the steps, the violence of the mob was so great, he had to be carried by the soldiers. And the crowd that followed kept shouting, get rid of him. Things, again, did not work out the way James had intended. So Paul is in the temple, minding his own business. And there's some Jews from Asia, most likely from Ephesus. That's where Paul had spent three of the past five years. And he had problems with them. When he is talking about his time in Ephesus, he said, I serve the Lord with great humility. I serve the Lord with tears. I serve the Lord in the midst of uh, plots and trials uh, by the Jews. So Paul had had difficulty with the Jews in Ephesus. It's Pentecost. That's why Paul was in Jerusalem. And it was normal and expected that Jews who were spread out in these other countries, that three times a year they would come back to Jerusalem for these major religious festivals, Pentecost being one. So it makes sense that you would have Jews from Asia, again, most likely Ephesus, in Jerusalem. They knew who Trophimus was. He was from Ephesus, and he was a Gentile. So they, they may have known who he was. And they just assume, because that guy's with Paul, and Paul's in the temple, that Paul took that guy into the temple. Paul didn't. At that point, he's trying to establish his Jewish credentials. So the last thing he's going to do is bring a Gentile where he knows a Gentile can't go. So here's a picture of the temple. So you see that little wall in the bottom left? Gentiles weren't allowed to cross that wall. This one right here. And then this is just a blow up of it down there. So Gentiles weren't allowed to cross that wall. On the outside of that, it's called the court of the Gentiles. And that's where they were allowed to stay. And so what these Jews are saying is Paul brought Trophimus past that wall. They've actually, they found some stones, some archaeologists have, that were set up at those gates. And you can see what those stones say, and they're written in Greek because they wanted to make sure that Gentiles could read them. No foreigner may enter within the barricade which surrounds the temple. Anyone who's caught trespassing will bear personal responsibility for his ensuing death. So that's what they, then you were stoned to death. And it appears that the Romans allowed the Jews to do that, that they stayed out of their business when it came to who came in 
the temple. So the charge, again, not true, is that Paul brought this Gentile across that barrier where he was not supposed to bring him. That defiles the temple. And so everybody goes nuts. Uh, The next one, please. So that thing that's circled is called the Fortress of Antonia, and that's it blown up on the right. So Herod built this temple, and he put an army barrack attached to it. And so you've got a couple of hundred Roman soldiers who are in that tower, and they can see out of that tower what's going on in the temple. So they see this commotion. They hear this commotion. They see this guy getting beaten. It's Paul. So they run down their two flights of steps. They're allowed to go in the court of the Gentiles. It's the only place they can go. So they go in there, and they break up the fight. And they arrest Paul, and they put him in chains, and then they're taking him back. Those are the barracks. They're taking him back to that place because it's the only spot that's safe for him because the crowd is so stirred up. Next week, Paul actually says, time out, I've got some things to say, and he gives a speech to this angry mob, and we'll look at that next week. But for our benefit today, just know that that's what's happening. James had sent Paul, never got the opportunity to fulfill that, Val never got the opportunity to kind of work that plan to see how that would go because there's some other people who say he's brought a Gentile into the temple, which he hadn't. All Hades breaks loose, and then Paul winds up in uh, chained up with a guard moving towards the barracks. And it actually marks one of the, from here on in Paul's life, much of it is spent uh, in chains. Much of it is spent moving from trial to trial to trial to trial. He'd only been in Jerusalem for one week, and already this prophecy that had been spoken to him, when you enter Jerusalem, difficulty is facing you in prison. It's already been fulfilled. So there's two things I want us to think about. One is a question, and we'll circle back to this over the next few weeks. It's a big, this is a big question, and it takes a while to kind of work your way all the way through it. And so I want to present it to you this morning, and hopefully you'll, you'll stew on it over the next several weeks, and as we talk about it, I hope it'll bring some clarity. So uh, this is my question. Do you believe, don't answer out loud, do you believe that it was God's will for Paul to be beaten and arrested? Do you believe it was God's will for Paul to be beaten and arrested? And your choices are yes or no. Those are your two options. So, In Acts chapter 20, this is what Paul says. He says, I'm going to Jerusalem. I'm compelled or I'm bound by the Holy Spirit. I'm going to Jerusalem. I don't know what awaits me. Only that hardship or affliction awaits me in prison. That's what I know is in front of me. So that's something that was predicted to Paul time and time again. It was something Paul was convicted of himself. It was something that was confirmed over and over again when he would go to these different churches. The prophets in the churches would say, Paul, here's what's coming for you. So my question, was it God's will then for Paul to be arrested and for Paul to be, to be beaten and arrested? Did, he, did God incite this mob scene that we just read about? So I'm going to tell you my opinion, and you do not have to agree with me on this. This is not a matter of salvation. It's not a matter of good standing within this church. It's it's just, it's where I'm coming from. It's not an academic question to me at all. It has, I believe, pretty deep implications in terms of how people live out their faith in the world and how they deal with the issues of, um, of injustice and evil. 
but you don't have to necessarily, again, you don't have to agree with me, but obviously the reason I think what I think is because I think it's right. So I'm going to, that's the flag I'm waving. Um, just like you think what you think, because you think it's right. We don't choose to hold wrong opinions knowingly, uh, for the most part. So um, that, that's where I'm standing, but I don't want you to, I want you to hear me, but I don't want you to feel bullied by me, because obviously I'm the one with the microphone and I'm not presenting the other side uh, fully. There is a school of thought that says everything that happens in the world happens because God wanted it to happen. Everything that happens in the world is God's will. Everything that happens in the world is caused by God. Does that make sense? It's called, in my world, I call that omni-control. God controls everything. There's a chessboard, and he is moving all the pieces around. And that can provide some level of comfort to think everything that happens happens because God wants it. Everything that happens has a purpose, and everything that happens is part of a plan. I don't think it's biblical, and I don't agree at all. I don't agree with that at all. I think there's things that happen every day that God does not want to happen. I think there are things that happen every day outside of the will of God. And I think there are things that happen every day that God does not cause. I think that is common. I don't think you have to think very far back in your life before you can find something. And I would say, God didn't do that. He didn't cause that. That wasn't his will for you or for them. Those things happened outside of his plan and purpose for you. He can absolutely redeem it, but he didn't cause it. So God knows everything. That's Acts 20. God knows what's going to happen to Paul. He knows what's going to happen in Jerusalem. That's not a surprise to God. He's omniscient. His knowledge is exhaustive. He doesn't just know what will happen. He knows what would happen if things were different. I got accepted. What would have happened if I'd gone to Georgia Tech or I'd gone to Wake Forest? He knows that. My senior year, I proposed to Mary Margaret. She said yes. God knows what would have happened if she would have said no. He knows how our lives would have played out if things played out different than they did. Does that make sense? He doesn't just know what will. He knows what could have. He knows all of the possibilities. His knowledge is exhaustive. There's nothing that can be known that God does not know. But that doesn't mean God causes everything. I know the sun is coming up tomorrow. I'm not causing it. My knowledge of that fact does not make it so. Does that make sense? And you say, well, God's knowledge is perfect. Absolutely. But that doesn't mean that his knowledge of the future causes all of the events in the future. Foreknowledge and and foreordaining are not the same thing. Are you with me? It's a lot of big words. Why does it matter? Jesus says in the Lord's Prayer, pray this. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. If God's will is already being done on earth, if everything that happens is already an expression of the will of God, then how do we pray that prayer? That prayer to me doesn't make any sense. Intercession, praying for others, doesn't make sense to me. It loses the the passion and the motivation to pray for others if everything that happens happens because God has foreordained it to happen. What exactly am I praying for? If everything that happens happens because God has designed it and caused it to happen, then why am I praying for God's kingdom? It's already come, apparently, because his will is already being done. I'm I'm being unfair to the other side, but I want you to hear what I'm saying. It undermines intercession to me. How do you deal personally with evil and tragedy and wickedness if all of those things ultimately are the will of God for you? 
Many of you have experienced, we have, and many of you have, you've experienced a miscarriage. Did God kill your baby? How do you deal with that? If you're a good father in heaven, if it was his desire and will to kill the baby in your womb, how do you, I don't get how you get around that. I would rather deal with the messiness and the mystery of living in a fallen world and the messiness and the mystery of healing, why some people are healed and some people aren't, than try to reconcile a good God who does evil things. If those are my two choices. To me, it's not just an academic or a theological question. It has a lot to do with the way you engage in prayer. It has a lot to do with the way you engage evil and injustice in the world. If everything that happens is an expression of the will of God, then what does that say to people? Or what does that say our response is to people who are addicted? What does that say our response is to people who are, whose bodies are broken? What's our response to people who are crushed under injustice? If everything that we see is an expression of the will of God, then who are we to get involved in those things? If, on the other hand, we have an enemy and he's powerful, he does things. If we live in a fallen world and the choices of sin play out in front of us and we have a God who confronts evil and we have a God who fights against evil and we have a God who says, I'm making all things new and we have a God who says, pray and I will answer. If we have a God who says, I stand with widows, I stand with orphans, I stand, I seek those who are lost, if that's the God that we serve, then what does that say to us about our response and intercession and activity? It's a completely different posture, in my opinion. Again, we'll come back to this a big topic early in the morning. I want you to think about it. I want you to ask the Lord. What do you think? Ask him. You don't have to listen to me. Ask him to to show you through biblically. What's your, what's your posture towards all this? Do you cause everything? Was it your will for Paul to be beaten? Was it your will for my dad to get cancer? Whatever those things are. My conviction is he's going to say, no. I was standing with you in that. I fight against those things. Those are all the things I'm working to reverse. That's why we took communion. That's the, that's the line in the sand. That says we're not doing this anymore. This is where evil stops. It matters to me. Motivation to pray. And I hope motivation to act. Last thing, we'll close with this. James had the best heart in the world. His idea was, man, I can see the clash of cultures here, and I don't want that to happen. And so here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to, Paul, here's this. It's not a setup, but kind of. Here's this thing, and I want you to do this thing, and it's going to let everybody know that you're still okay with Jewish Christians being Jewish, that you're okay with that. It's not a big deal. I want you to do this. And Paul, wisely or not, goes along with it, trying to honor James. Blows up in their face. We don't know if it would have worked. It wouldn't have. Historically, it wouldn't have. Within a matter of years, the um, Judaism as a whole has kicked the Christians out said, you guys are heretics. You're not welcome in the temple anymore. So it wasn't going to work. The issue to me when I read that, James with the best of, uh, of intentions, he was going after things the wrong way. What he was trying to do was establish unity based on people's Jewishness. 
rather than unity based on their common commitment to Jesus. He was trying to establish unity around a secondary issue, not around the primary issue. And it never works. The secondary issues aren't strong enough. When you think about Marietta, one of the strongholds in our city is this, uh, there's exclusiveness, there's divisions. They're racial, they're economic, and they're social. And that's true within the body of Christ as well. And if, as a church, little c, we're going to begin to see church with a capital C emerge in downtown Marietta. If we're going to begin to see some expression of the body of Christ that transcends the four walls of our building, which is what God wants, the bride and the body, if we're going to see that, that become a reality, then we have to get to a point where we're willing to, and we recognize essential unity around a common commitment to Jesus, not around secondary issues, not around who voted for who. That's a secondary issue. There are people in this church, if you can believe it, who voted for Bernie Sanders and Donald Trump. And they both would say, I'm following Jesus, and this is the best expression of the kingdom. Those are secondary issues. Those are not primary. Our unity is not based on our common political persuasion. Our unity is not based on the fact that we know that, that we sing the same songs or that we have a worship band or that we don't wear ties. That's not, we don't just connect with other people like that. We want to connect with all who have a common commitment to Jesus. That's what the body of Christ is. That's what the bride of Christ is. That's the only thing fundamentally that's strong enough to keep us together. All those other issues, they're fine. It's fine to, to circumcise your kids, Jewish Christians. It's fine to follow the law of Moses, Jewish Christians. But you can't make that the bond of unity or the litmus test for connecting, which is what they were doing. You can't do that. That's not deep enough. Commitment to Christ, that's what's foundational. Jews, you get to be Jews. Gentiles, you get to be Gentiles. And here are the things that, for y'all to relate to each other, Gentiles just avoid blood. Because that, for Jews, that's a huge taboo. Food with blood in it. No sexual immorality. And we don't want you to do anything connected to idols. For the sake of relationship, you make those accommodations. Jews, in order to relate to Gentiles, you've got to let go of the other 609 laws that you follow. You get to keep those four. And the other 609, you've got to let go of when it comes to expecting them to follow. They don't have to. Your unity is in Jesus. That's what's fundamental. And that's true for us. And that's true for us when you think about the church as a capital C. And then when you look at your own life, what's the core for you? We could rip open your chest and look in your heart. What is in the, what's in the center? What's underneath the rest? What is forming in your, and shaping your identity? Is it your commitment to Jesus? If the answer is no, you're going to run into some trouble. Hear this in the way I mean it. You're, you're not necessarily following him. You just happen to be walking in the same direction as him for a time. And those are not the same thing. You all play many roles. Those are some of the roles that I have that are up on the screen. You've got others and some of you have more. My, your core is your commitment to Jesus. And then that commitment infuses the way you live and informs the way you live all of those roles. Does that make sense? The issue that we read in Acts 21 is there was a group of Jewish Christians who were Jewish Christians. They weren't Christians who were Jews. They were Jewish Christians. Their Jewishness was modifying their Christianity. Does that make sense? Their Christianity was not informing their, Jew their Jewishness. It was working the wrong way. They were being Christians... Through the lens of being Jews. 
instead of being Jews through the lens of being Christians. It makes all the difference in the world. And it makes all the difference in the world for us. I'm a husband, and, and my way I relate to my wife should be informed by the fact that, that I'm a Christian, that I'm a, my commitment to Jesus should impact and inform the way I'm a husband and I'm a father and I'm an employer and I am a citizen in this city. Those things don't inform my commitment to Jesus. My commitment to Jesus informs those things. It may sound like I'm playing with words, but it's incredibly important. At some point, you come into conflict. What it means to be a son or what it means to be a husband or what it means to be a parent may come into conflict with what it means to follow Jesus. So who wins? If your commitment to him is not core, I don't know that he's going to win. How do you know? Look at all of your roles. Go through them in your mind. Are you consistent all the way around that wagon wheel? If the hub is your commitment to Jesus, then as you work all the way around that wagon wheel, every one of those roles, there should be some level of consistency in terms of what's coming out of you. We're in youth group. They talked about wearing masks. You heard that. If you're wearing masks, then your commitment to Jesus is not, it's not core. There's something else that for you is determining your identity. It's not your commitment to Jesus. It's your role at work or it's your family situation or it's a desire for approval from a friend group. There's something else that's, that's hub for you that's core. If you see consistency all the way around the wagon wheel, if you see consistency through every role of life, you're probably doing all right. The thing holding those things together is your commitment to Jesus. And that's where we want to get, because here's what God will do. If there's something other than Jesus at the core, he will provoke conflict for you. He will bring you to a point where you have to make a choice. Because he is a consuming fire. He's not angry. It's not an angry fire. It's his nature. And fire consumes. He's a holy God and he consumes things that are not holy. Fire's not angry at wood. Fire just consumes wood. It's what it does. It's not angry at it. It's just the nature of fire. The nature of God's holiness is he burns the things that are not holy. He's not angry. It's just what he does. In 1 Corinthians 3, Paul talks about building. He says, you're either building with wood and hay and stubble, or you're building with gold and silver and precious stones. Which one of those you think makes it through a fire? And he says, the day of the Lord, the end for all of us, judgment day, it's going to show what we built with. And people who build with these things that are flammable, they're still going to heaven. But the Bible says they go through as someone escaping through the flames. Your pants are on fire. That's how you're going through. You're still in. This isn't a question of salvation. But just barely. Build with gold, with silver, with precious stones. The consuming nature of God doesn't burn those things up. It refines them and makes them more pure, better. He's not angry. But he's holy. And holiness burns up unholiness. It's what it does. Unholiness can't be in the presence of holiness. Just like wood can't be in the presence of fire. The fire always wins. Same with his holiness. 
you think about your life, don't hear this as me pressing on you. Just ask the question, God, am I consistent all the way around the wagon wheel? Do the people at work see the same thing that my wife sees? Do my kids see the same thing that people in my small group see? Do the guys that I play golf with see the same thing that the people I volunteer at PTA? Is it consistent all the way around? If the answer is yes, then you're building with gold. You're building with silver. You're building with costly stones. If the answer is no, you're probably not. Let's pray. I'm just going to, we're going to close with prayer. We won't have um, altar ministry today. We did make sure we have a couple of minutes to pray. So here's the question I want you asking the Lord. Super simple. God, is my commitment to you the core of who I am? Just that simple. God, is my commitment to you the core of who I am? If you felt like the Lord said yes, you don't need to, like, that's good. I know y'all, and for many of you, the answer 100%, it's yes. So you don't need to try to make it no. Thank him for that. And what you can pray in your own heart, God, I thank you for that. Would you show me how to maintain priority for you? And God, would you continue to infuse every role that I play all the way around that wagon wheel with your grace and your love and your power? Would you use me in every one of those relational contexts? Would you use me in every one of those situations to bring glory to you and to bless other people? If the answer was no, you don't need to feel guilty. You just need to confess. God, I confess. Blank. You can ask them. If you don't even know what it is, you might say, I don't even know what the core is. Ask him, God, show me. What's forming and shaping my identity? What's driving me? confess it. God, I confess that the core of who I am is this insecure little boy who's looking for approval. I confess that the core of who I am is this self-righteous woman who always wants to be right. God, I confess that the core of who I am is a people-pleasing son who just wants to make sure everybody's happy. Whatever it is, confess, God, that's the core And I'm asking you, Jesus, to be the center for me. I'm asking you to to make my commitment to you be the foundation upon which everything else in my life is built. If there's anything that needs to burn, that you would burn it. I pray it wouldn't hurt too bad.
And I pray that you would begin to show me how to build with gold and silver and costly stones. As I look around that wagon wheel, God, I pray for courage and grace to be consistent throughout. I confess it makes me nervous. It makes me scared. I don't think I can. I don't see it. But I'm asking you, fill me with your spirit. Enable me in each of those areas to reflect my commitment to you. I want to pray for one other group. If you've wrestled with, um, we'll just call it evil in your life, and it's pushed you away from the Lord, maybe um, you, you've believed that those were, that was something that God did to you or God desired to have that happen to you, and it's caused you to pull back. I want you to just, uh, this is all I want you to do, just ask the Lord and say, God, where were you when fill-in-the-blank happened? Show me where you were. And God, how did you feel about that? You used to ask, that may be a weird question for you to ask the Lord. If you read the Bible, there's all kinds of emotive language that's used of God. We're created in his image, and part of that is our emotion. So it's okay to ask him. God, how did you feel about that? God, I pray that you would speak to the men and the women who have closed off a part of their heart because of tragedy that has struck them, that they've attributed, for whatever reason, to you. And God, I pray that you would show them in your compassion, in your love, and in your strength how you feel about the evil that they've experienced and how you feel about them in the midst. God doesn't cause everything, but he can redeem anything if you'll give him a chance. God, I pray that you would lead us and guide us as we go. I pray that we would all go, even with this kind of the, the hints that we see in Paul, that you do work all things together for our good, that you do uh, fulfill your word to us, your promises to us are sure. We don't always understand and how those things work, but we know that they do, that you're the author and the perfecter. You're the starting line and the finish line, Jesus. So I pray that we would do our part in terms of being faithful and we would trust you to do your part in terms of working all things together to your glory and to our good. In Jesus' name, amen.